Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad you guys are here today with us. Uh, man, I love that song we did. He called my name. I ran out of the grave. Just such celebration and goodness. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm Sean. You're you. So let's do this. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, don't worry about it. We're going to read the whole passage of Matthew 13, not the whole chapter. But um, this is kind of for free for you, is that until recently in the church, um, people would not have read Matthew 13. And here's what I mean, is that for most of Christian history, the, the Gospels weren't something that people picked up and read themselves. For most Christians, it was something that was read to them. The Gospels were stories that were told, intended to be told, to be heard. Uh, when Matthew wrote his book, he would have never imagined, I don't think, that every single one of us would have a copy and we'd be able to sit in our living room or in our car or on our smartphone and, uh, and, and read it. It was intended for the church to gather and to listen. And so, if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you just don't want to follow along, that's totally fine. Let me read, and just listen as Matthew was intended to be uh, received. So it says this, that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Before we get too far into it, I, I do actually want to give you a little context in case you've missed this last week or the last couple weeks. We just finished up Matthew 12. Now, Matthew 12 is the culmination of, in Matthew's telling of, of Jesus' life, it's the culmination of the direct conflict with the religious leaders. Most commonly the Pharisees, it's maybe a word you've heard before, is that Jesus um, most aggressively confronts them, culminating in chapter 12, and we've been looking at that for the last couple weeks. But one thing that I wanted to point out, so, so you don't miss what's going on here, is um, there are times with Jesus where he looks very con uh, confrontational, and he is, right? There's the, the story of the temple, and he, and he chucks tables around, and he makes a whip, and he whips at people, and, and, and he says, you know, at different spots, he says, you brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. Like, there are these things that seem very confrontational, but I want you to know and see that, that Jesus' confrontation with religious leaders is always born out of his immense love for them. There's a spot towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and he's up on a hill over Jerusalem, and he says this. He says, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, right? So when he's contesting, even with religious leaders, he's contesting for them. He's calling them to himself. And so uh, we come to chapter 13, and it makes a shift from this confrontation with the religious leaders to a broader conversation with the crowd that we just are going to get introduced to in chapter two, in verse 2 here. It says this in verse 2. And large crowd gathers, gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying... Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not find, did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded crops, some a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. 
For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, With their eyes they scarcely hear, and and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return. Look, this is so important. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear. Hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the evil one comes and snatches away that has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed is sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. That is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So here's the question we want to ask today. It sounds like maybe a really mundane question, but you, but you got to ride with me for the next 25 minutes, and I trust you that it's going to pay off, okay? Here's the question. It's actually basically the same question the disciples asked Jesus. They ask him this, basically, like, why do you teach in stories? Why do you teach in stories? A, a couple months ago, um, I was having a conversation with my dad about his work, and if you don't know my dad, my dad works on the sales side of a cabinet company. Okay, and uh, so when people are working with him, they're making big purchases. I don't know if you've ever bought a kitchen of cabinets. You, you don't ever just buy a cabinet for a kitchen. Like, you buy the whole kitchen, right? It's a lot of money. And he said that over the years, as a good sales rep, he, he's learned that people complain. Do you know this? Have you met people? It's what they do, Right? They get exactly what they ordered and they complain. But the reason they complain a lot of times is because they don't understand what they ordered, right? And they're like, I ordered white cabinets. I thought they were gonna be off-white cabinets or I thought they were gonna be whatever stupid thing, right? And they complain. And so he, he said every time someone's gonna buy a cabinet, he has a story he tells them to make sure that they completely understand exactly what they're ordering. So, so here's an example, okay? Okay. Uh, if you're going to buy a kitchen cabinet from him and you're in the store with him and, and you want to buy um, all cherry cabinets and you're like, oh, oh, cherry, the richness of cherry. It just has such character, isn't it? Beautiful cherry. I, I've looked at a lot of Pinterest and, you know, Pinterest, it's all beautiful. It's all cherry. It's all, oh, it's so rich and good, right? right? And you're like, I want to get cherry. He, he, this is what he'll say to you. He'll go, he'll go yeah, man, cherry's, cherry's beautiful. But you know what I really love? I love summer. And you'll go, I don't care. Probably not, because you're politer than that. But 
You'll think in your head, I don't care. And it, but he'll tell you the story. He'll say, I love summer. You know the best thing about summer? Is he says, you know, like the long days and the afternoons, the beautiful afternoons, and you sit out on your porch with a big old bowl of cherries. I mean, is there anything better than sitting out on your front porch, the sun is just like warm in your face, and the leaves are kind of rustling in a light breeze, and you sit out there and you eat fresh, local cherries. Is there anything better than that, Right? But the worst part is when you're eating cherries, you're sitting there with that big bowl, and that one time you go to reach in and you look, and there's no cherries left. And all that's in your bowl is that thing you've been spitting out every time that we call cherry pits. Cherry pits. Cherry wood will always have pits. Now here's the genius of that. You're never gonna forget that. It's a stupid story, and it's going to do nothing to help you grow closer to Jesus, but you're never going to forget that cherry wood has pits, right? This is one of the reasons that Jesus teaches in stories, is because there's something in our brains that connect differently with stories that we never forget them. Often people have wondered or questioned, like, how could Matthew have remembered so many stories of Jesus? Because they're stories, because Jesus taught in stories. Uh, cognitive scientists have, have, have shown that if I communicate to you data, if I just tell you, you know, what the weather's gonna be like or what the weather was like last year, a little part of your brain just kind of goes, doo, 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 doo. but if I tell you a story about a snowstorm we had last year, which we didn't have any, but if I did, if I just made one up and told you a story, your whole brain, like fireworks, would just, brrr, because the way God made us he made us to be people of stories. Stories. In fact, one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Fred Craddock. Uh, one of my favorite sermons ever that I've ever heard is Fred Craddock in Romans 16. Now, if you've, if you've never read Romans 16, don't. Uh, <laughs> all it is, Romans 16, you can go look at it. It's you know, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so. But Fred Craddock gives this sermon of, on Romans 16. It is amazing. It's so good. But you know what Fred Craddock is? Fred Craddock grew up as the son of a professional storyteller in the Appalachian Mountains, which is like rich storytelling culture. And so his, his preaching is just that way. He just tells stories for 30 minutes. He tells story after story after story. But here's the beauty of stories is at the end of the sermon, you feel what he feels. Like, you know what he knows. Even if he doesn't ever express or articulate what he's trying to tell you, you know what he's trying to tell you through stories. We are story people. One of the great gifts of God is that he communicates to us in story Stories have a powerful way of sharing one with another things that are otherwise unspeakable. You can feel emotion that I could never explain to you if I didn't tell you stories. But more than that, Jesus teaches more than just stories. He teaches a very specific kind of story. He teaches in a kind of story called a parable. Uh, a parable is, is unique and different and not something that we often use today um, in, in our language that we basically are just exposed to in the Bible. One of the problems with us reading the parables of Jesus is that we don't understand the purpose of a parable and we think a parable is the same as an allegory. Do you know what an allegory is? In an allegory, every single detail 
of every part of the story is connected to something in reality. It's trying to articulate, but every detail represents something. A parable is not a story. Um, Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe is an allegory. Animal Farm is an allegory. Wizard of Oz is actually an allegory. In an allegory, every detail represents something, but a parable, get this, this is really important, as we're, chapter 13 is just a bunch of parables. We're gonna be working through them for about the next month, probably until Christmas, okay? A parable is a simple story with a single point. A simple story with a single point. This is why it matters, this is why it matters. Because if we don't understand this about parables, you end up with some really weird theology, Okay? Like, let's just take, for example, the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the Good Samaritan? Guy's going on a walk, you know, afternoon stroll, and he gets the tar beat out of him. And, uh, and then a religious guy comes along, and he sees him, and he walks on the other side of the religious guy, and then kind of a, 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 a religious guy, but he's like on the JV team. He's not quite up to varsity yet. He sees what the varsity guy does, and he walks around him as well. And then a Samaritan, the enemy of the guy who's been beat up, he stops, and he takes care of him. He takes care of his bandages. He puts him on his donkey, and then he walks him to an keeper. He leaves him there and he pays for his care. All to answer the question that is posed to Jesus, who's my neighbor? See, Jesus is trying to tell us something. He's, he's saying this. He's saying the neighbor is the one who does something. That you cannot claim to love your brother or love your neighbor if you don't do anything. That's the point. That your neighbor is not divided by class, nationality, or religion, but your neighbor is who God's put in front of you and you are called to love them just as yourself, is what scripture tells us, to love them and to do something. John tells us, basically, in 1 John, that you can't claim to love your brother. I mean, you can't claim to love God, who you have not seen, if you don't love your brother, who you have seen. Love requires you to do something. You see, we misunderstand parables, though, when we treat them as allegories. Just imagine the Good Samaritan, right? If you tried to find a direct correlation to every character in it, like, like who's the Levite and who's the priest and, and who's the innkeeper and, and who's the donkey, or maybe you read it in the King James Version, then that's a lot easier to figure out who is that person in your life, is we end up in weird places. But a parable, here's the thing, here's the thing. A parable is not intended to be complex. A parable is a simple story with a single truth. It's not intended to be complex. It's not intended to be veiled. In fact, the whole idea of a parable, don't miss this, because so many of us have given up on understanding what Jesus is trying to say or have been weighted down with what Jesus is trying to say, just as the crowd did, because we've misunderstood the purpose of parables. The purpose of parable is to take, to take unknown things of God and to make them known through the known things of the world. The purpose of a parable is Jesus is trying to tell them something. I was taught growing up, or grabbed somewhere growing up, that Jesus used parables because he was trying to hide things from people. That it was some like secret code or language that he didn't want anybody else to know, just his disciples. But the problem is, is it doesn't make any sense in the whole mission of Jesus and the whole message of the gospel. I mean, just think about this. If that's the purpose, if Jesus is trying to hide things from people, why would Jesus say anything at all? 
When the crowds begin to gather, right, just in this story, when the crowds begin to gather at the seashore, why would Jesus get in a boat and float out into the sea so that he could talk like a megaphone out to the whole crowd? Why would he care? Why would he not just sit there and say, I don't, I don't care, right? I'm gonna talk to the disciples. They can hear me. The rest of you, it doesn't matter. You're not supposed to know this stuff anyways, right? How would we end up with the feeding the 5,000 when they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming and Jesus is teaching all day? Why would he waste his energy? Why would Jesus exhaust himself? teaching people, if he's trying to hide stuff from them. In fact, it's contrary to the whole idea of the incarnation. The whole idea of the incarnation is that the God who is unknowable in a lot of senses, he's not unknowable philosophically, take a deep breath, okay? But he's, there are things about him. He says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, that instead of him expecting us to become like him, he becomes like us. It's the whole good news that John celebrates in the beginning in John 1. He says this in John 1 verse 14. Maybe. Oh, nope, it's up there. He says this in John 1 14, and the word became flesh. God, Jesus is the word, right? Jesus, the word is a, is a, is a Hebrew idea for the, um, uh, the incarnation of the wisdom of God. So Jesus becomes the incarnation of the wisdom of God. He becomes flesh and he dwells among us. He dwells among us. The word there is the same word that they would use for tabernacle. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the place at the center of the encampment that God dwelled with his people. His whole purpose is that Jesus came and dwelt among us, and it says right here, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. The whole purpose of Jesus' coming was that we might see who God is. And so this idea that Jesus is teaching parables because he's trying to hide from people doesn't fit or make sense with all the rest of what Jesus is doing. Now, now you, we just read it. You might go, Sean, but remember, did you see the prophecy that Jesus quoted? Yeah, I saw the prophecy. And if you read it and, and you look at it, what Jesus is saying and what the prophet is saying is that they have numbed their own hearts and minds. They have numbed their own ears to, to uh, ignoring the, the, the message of God. They've ignored God so much that when Jesus stands, when God incarnate stands right in front of them, they can't hear him. In fact, the prophecy of Isaiah is one of hope and pleading. You remember that? Jesus pleading with the religious leaders. He's pleading with them. If they would, if they would understand with their heart, uh, um, uh, Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them if they would just see, if they would just see. You see, the prophecy of Isaiah is not saying that God has hidden things from them, but in their pride and arrogance and bitterness, or I might contend for today, in their busyness, they have missed seeing him when he stood right in front of them. So it leads us to a really important question that carries the weight of this morning. And it's this question, if the crowd missed him, if the crowd was the fulfillment of Isaiah, then what made the disciples the, 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 the other part where, where Jesus said, blessed are your eyes, for you've seen. Blessed are your ears because you hear. What's the difference between the crowd and the disciples? And in this story, from as much as I can tell, there is one single difference, and it comes, 
It comes in verse 12. It comes in verse 12. It says this. The disciples came and said to him, why? The crowd didn't understand. The crowd didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand. To act like the difference between the crowd and the disciples was that the disciples understood is to completely misread all of scripture and apparently never have to met Peter, right? Because all the time the disciples are completely and totally missing it. The difference between the disciples and the crowd is the disciples asked why. The crowd didn't understand. It didn't make sense. The parable didn't make sense. The parable's not even in response to a question. They don't even ask a question. Jesus just starts talking, and it didn't make sense to them, and they went, ah, yeah, farmers, crazy people, right? Why is a guy farming in a path? Who knows, right? You know, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just leave that to the professionals. We'll just leave that to the disciples. Maybe one day Matthew will write a book and he'll tell us. He'll tell us what Jesus was talking about. We'll just leave that to the professionals. In fact, at one point it does very explicitly say that, that Jesus was teaching and it was hard teaching and the crowds didn't understand it and they didn't like it and it didn't feel good and it didn't make sense the way they saw the world or the way they understood the world. And so they left and so many of them left that Jesus turned to his own disciples and he said, are you two gonna leave? And they, they, they said, Jesus, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Who, who else has the words of life? Where are we going to go? The difference between the crowd and the disciples was not their devotion, was not their wisdom, was not their pedigree, was not their experience. It was their courage to ask why. It was their courage to ask why. Maybe one of the most holy acts we can do in growing in our faith is simply to ask the question, why? You see, a good student is not one who does not need his teacher, but a good student is one who knows how to utilize his teacher, one who asks the right questions. In the face of things they didn't understand, the disciples were bold enough or stupid enough, depending on your perception, to ask. Maybe the most holy spiritual act we can do is to ask the question, why? You see, you see, we know this. Like, why is how you grow, right? Um, occasionally, I'll, I'll drive my daughter to school, and, and uh, her school's about 12 minutes away. And, and it's 12 minutes. If you have young children, it's 12 minutes of, Daddy, why is this this way? Daddy, why is this? Daddy, why is the sun round? Daddy, why is the sun up sky? Where's the sun go? Daddy, why is there grass? Daddy, why is the grass green? Right, it's all these questions, right? This last week she asked me this question, we're driving, and she goes, she goes, uh, Daddy, why does every Christian song start soft and then get loud? There are some mysteries too great. <laughs> She's not wrong, Right? We know this. I mean, we know that, that the, the, the greatest leaps of our cognitive development happen when we are a young child, when we're asking the question, why, about everything. It's how we grow. If you're, if you're an educator, we got a lot of educators. If you're an educator, you commit yourself to being a lifelong learner, which is simply the discipline of asking why over and over and over again. It's how we grow in our intellect it's how we grow in our spiritual walk with Jesus, is asking the question, 
why. And then here's the really beautiful, here's the really incredible thing, is the disciples ask him the question why, and look at what Jesus says. Hear then the parable of the sower. They ask the question why, and Jesus answers. A.W. Tozer has this really great quote. I love it. He says this. He says, we have as much of God as we actually want. Doesn't that make you a little uncomfortable? We have as much of God as we actually want. I might rephrase this for today's sermon. We have as much of God as we've asked for. A pastor once pointed out a, a kind of an odd story in scripture. There's a story where the disciples are all reclining with Jesus at a table. That's what they did to tables. They kind of reclined at the tables. And then it makes this really specific point that they're all reclining, but John lays on Jesus' chest, right? And just so we're clear, that was weird and awkward then as well for, for him, right? But he makes this point. He says, he says what, what was different between John, who laid on Jesus' chest and the disciples? You see, John took the opportunity to take what was available to him. And the disciples, the other 11, missed out. They missed out on the intimacy. They missed out on the nearness. But John was humble enough to draw near to God. And this is the message we see all throughout Scripture. Is our good God who when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Matthew said it. Jesus said it in the book of Matthew earlier. Ask, seek, knock. That if you ask, that if you seek, you'll find. That if you knock, the door will be open. The good news of the gospel is that not only that God has come near to us, but that as often as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. That we can have as much of God as we want. The difference between the disciples and the crowds who wandered away hearing a weird story about farmers who were really bad at planting seeds, apparently, and the disciples who grew closer to Jesus with every conversation was they were bold enough and courageous enough to ask the question, why? To ask the question, why? If we, humble, if we are humble enough to ask, to seek the God who has made himself known will be available to you. This is the difference between growing near to Jesus and apathy. So the parable. Let's quickly look at it. It is a parable. It is a simple story with a single point. And here, I'll sum it up for you. The simple point is this, is that what you allow around you and in you will impact what you see God do in you. What you allow in you and around you will impact what you see God do in and through you. Uh, he tells a story. He tells a story about casting seed into rocky soil. It's the best translation. It's a good translation. But if you don't know anything about soil, you can't actually have rocky soil. Um, if, you have rocky, if you have soil that is rocky, you don't have soil. You have gravel. Right? You can have, and what Jesus is trying to say is you can have soil. All the soil is the same. The soil is our heart. The soil is our life. The, the seed, Jesus says, is the gospel, is the good news of God. Right? Um, all of us have soil. All of us have a soul. But some of us have allowed stones of obstruction into our soul. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration, maybe it's envy, maybe it's apathy. But what Jesus is saying is that you can let things into your heart that will deprive your heart of being rich of the nutrients it needs to grow in God. 
He says that um, uh, sometimes our hearts are like a path, that they've been so pressed down and beat down and smashed down and worn down. And maybe you feel that way today, just, just like crushed and pressed down to where it's hard for God. You, you've got a cold and bitter heart. You've got an apathetic heart. And it's hard for the things of God to grow in that. Jesus telling us that as we talk about that there is a very real enemy who wants to come to kill, steal, and destroy, John talks about. Jesus talks about in the book of John to come steal, kill, and destroy, that there is an enemy and you have to know, you have to find ways to guard your heart, to not give the devil a foothold, that there are, that there, there are enemies in this world who are trying to, when God wants to do something in your heart, they're trying to grab it out just like a bird and trying to steal it before it can take root, that Jesus is saying that maybe the problem in your heart, the weakness in your heart, is that your heart is consumed with other lovers like weeds that are sapping the nutrients for God to do something rich and life-giving in you. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is that what you allow in and around your life affect what God will do in and through you. So here's the question that needs to be asked today. If we want to grow, if we want to see God do 160, 30-fold in our soul, if we want to see God move and, 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 and produce fruit and incredible things in our life, is we need to ask this question, God, what needs to be eliminated today? We need to have the boldness of the disciples to ask, God, what are you calling me to do today? Where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to take a step? Where are you leading me? We need to have the boldness to ask God questions. Maybe, maybe your question, I'm just gonna be honest with you, maybe the question you need to ask today is, is, is God is just like the disciples. Why? God, have you seen our world? Have you seen our nation? Have you seen, have you seen what's going on? Why are you allowing this? Our God is big enough. Our God is big enough to handle any of your questions. But if you want to be like the disciples and not like the crowd, then today we must ask God questions. And as we ask him, he draws near to us. It's the whole reason he tells stories. Because you see, when you tell a story, when you tell a good story, when you tell a really beautiful, powerful story, you watch. Uh, I was listening to a comedian talk about how he, how he knows how to work the crowd. And he says that he knows he has a crowd ready for the punchline when they go from this to this. And they begin to lean in. And God's inviting us to lean in and to ask questions because he wants to draw near to us and he wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to experience the fullness of life. We believe that, 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 that God came, that Jesus came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so what's the question that you need to ask today? What's the thing that's the obstacle in the way of you having the courage to ask God the question, God, what needs to be eliminated from my life? What is the distraction in my life? What is robbing my affections from you? God, why are you doing this? Have you seen my family? God, what is going on? God, what is your plan? God, when will you move in this? What is the question you need to ask today? Maybe the question you need to ask is the first question we all need to ask. Is God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for my apathy? Will you forgive me for my wandering? Will you forgive me for my anger? Will you forgive me for my carelessness? God, will you forgive me? And God, will you heal me? Because you remember the prophecy of Isaiah? The prophecy of Isaiah was not simply a condemnation of people whose heart who'd drawn cold before God, but a promise of hope that if we would return to him, he would heal us. May we have the courage to ask today.
that he might heal us.